Welcome to Cartoonist Cafe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Today, the man of the hour, Tower of Power, Joe Quesada. Jimmy, drop a book or two. Let's get right into things because the man's a busy dude over there at Marvel. Uh, how about Ninjak, Exo Manowar Zero? Um, getting into Marvel time periods, uh, we've got X Factor, Daredevil, Spider Man. I mean, Marvel editor in chief for quite a quite a run. So associated with some of the biggest characters there at Marvel Comics. And uh, Joe Quesada, welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. Hey guys, how are you? Pleasure. So you know we get deep with with the comic book talk, uh, but I'm also kind of a video game head man. Uh, read read the interviews and stuff before. I would love to get it on the record. Young teenage Joe Quesada, after the video game bust, works at FAO Schwartz, and a couple uh, people from Nintendo of America come yep. with a with a uh, proposal to put out some consoles on consignment. Mm -hmm. Yep. How's that story play out, man? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring this up because I was just contacted about two weeks ago, um, maybe three, it was just, it was prior, it was prior to, to the Christmas holidays by, uh, by a, a, a writer who, who is, who's essentially a historian on the world of video games. And he's trying to find the the connective tissue with my story and the Nintendo story because that whole Nintendo story is 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 very muddied and conflicted, um, and you know the idea that you know in, in in Nintendo's records the the NES debuted at FAO Schwarz somewhere around October. My recollection is that uh, a gentleman from Nintendo. Uh, came and sold and wanted to sell these games to us on consignment somewhere around August, September, long before, because they, they, they eventually brought in a point of purchase display and all this sort of stuff. But that's not how my recollection of it started. So, so they were trying to find uh, the connective tissue. And, you know, a, a lot of the people that were involved at the time are, are, are no longer with us. And, and so it, it's hard to, it's amazing to me though, that, that Nintendo didn't really have, you know, like at Marvel, we could, we could, you know, trace pretty much anything we've done right in, in, in the history of Marvel to a date and time and place and creator and stuff. Nintendo didn't have that at that point, right? Like even, even the idea of like, what, when did, when did, you know, when the Mario Brothers premiere, right? That, that you know, that's kind of under, you know, uh, uh, they, they kind of know, but they're not 100% sure. So so the stories I remember was, um, I worked at the game department at FAO Shores. Uh, and, uh, you know, th this is after the the bust of the, of the video game, you know, world. And, and, and you know, we were, we were trying to push Atari cartridges out, out the door at 99 cents and nobody was buying them. And this guy comes in and, 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 and I guess he, he came and met with our manager. The manager comes down and he says, look, you're, you're, you're the games expert. You play all these games, uh, which I did. I, I would take a game home like once or twice a week and try to learn how to play all the detailed Avalon Hill strategy games and all the new games that were coming in so I could sell them. Uh, it was my job. <laughs> so uh, he said, you're a gamer, right? I'm like, at one point I was a gamer and he's like, well, I got this guy. He's a really nice guy. And he's trying to sell us on a console system. Like Nobody wants console systems. And I'm nodding my head. Yeah, nobody wants. He's like, could you at least hear him out? See what he's got to say. And I'm like, sure. So, so the, the gentleman came down and, and, and I think I know who it is, but I don't want to mention names because again, I don't want to muddy up the, the work that's being done on, on, on the history of this thing. And maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I don't think so. Uh, so, uh, so he came down. He was really charming, and 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 uh, 
and he had, he you know was was trying to sell me on the the NES you know with with, with the gun and then the robot and the whole thing, and, and I'm like, dude, just nobody nobody wants video games. And he's like, I'll tell you what, take this home, take it's my gift to you, take it home, play with it, see what you think. I'll be back. I don't know if he was back the next day, a couple of days later, whatever it may be. Um, but he wasn't from New York, right? He, he was from Seattle and, and, uh, and he had had a history with Nintendo that went as far back as, you know, his, his time in Japan. And anyway, so, uh, so I take this thing home and I'm playing duck hunt and I'm playing, you know, the, the, the system. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is a, this is a game. The robot sucked. It just didn't work. Right. I'm like, this could be a game changer, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know how to sell this thing. I have no idea. So eventually we reunited and, and, and he said, what'd you think? I'm like, it's, it's crazy. It's fantastic. Right. It, it, it's kind of, it's that next generation of video games. That we were kind of hope was coming after the Atari started presenting stuff. Um, and we look at it now, right? It looks archaic. So, so we, we, we reunited and, and I said, look, it's fantastic. This thing is a game changer. I can't sell it. I cannot sell it at all. So he said, look, I'll give you some units on consignment and I'll give you a window of exclusivity where F.A.R. Schwartz is the only place that has it. Okay. So I talked to the manager. I said, this is a no-lose proposition for us. It's just a matter of finding a little bit of floor space for it. So we agreed. And I remember building a display on the floor of I, we had Trivial Pursuit that, that, that I would do this sort of artistic, you know, geometric display on the floor in the game department. And, and so Trivial Pursuit was red hot. So I took down the Trivial Pursuit display and I put those on the wall and I built the same display with the Nintendo boxes. And, you know, so it was right there for people to see as they came off the escalator, as they came through the door. So people walk in and go, what's that? Hey, it's a video game system. Pass. Literally, it was a hard pass. It was a constant hard pass. Finally, I had this gentleman come in. I remember he was, he was uh, you know, dapper dude in his business suit and stuff. And he's like, I'm looking for something for my, for my kid. And I said, how about this? And he's like, is that a video game system? Yeah. I said, mm, I don't know. So I said, <laughs> I couldn't move these things. I just said, how about this? Take it. Take it. Try it out. Open the box. Tear it apart. I don't care. If it doesn't work for you, just bring it back. I'll refund your money completely. Okay. So he took it with him never brought it back. And then little by little, you know, uh, me and, and, and my buddies who were also salespeople in that department, we were selling those Nintendo units by word of mouth. One at a time, just like, Hey, you got to like, like take us, you know, take our word for it. Uh, so they started to move out slowly. And then I remember the, the, the change and it happened pretty quickly was we, we, you know, again, this is the archaic days of, of doing retail. So even though F.A.R. Schwartz had this catalog, they did not have a separate warehouse somewhere in New Jersey that shipped out. So they didn't have a team of people on the phone that would handle these mail orders. And there was no internet, of course. So if you wanted something, if you called FAO Shores and you said, hey, I want a game, this game, the operator would connect you to the games department. We would pick up the phone and we would take the phone order with the delivery instructions. And then that would be rung up and go downstairs because downstairs was the stock room and the stock room mailed everything out. So I remember I got a call and I picked it up and it was this woman. She's like, I hear this is a video game system. Uh, and, and I said, yeah, it's called the NES. And she's like, great, I'd like to order one. And I'm thinking, okay, so she's gonna live, she lives in the city and she's gonna want, you know, just messenger. So, so where would you like this messenger to? 
And she's like, oh, no, 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 not a messenger. I, I live in Denver. I need this thing mailed. And I was like, oh. And that's kind of when I knew that the shift had happened, like word of mouth had happened so quickly over this thing that some woman in Denver wanted this system for a kid. Uh, and then the rest of this stuff is history. And then they brought in the point of purchase display and, uh, and you know, people would just loiter in the game department playing the games all day long, you know. But it's, so, it's sold like hotcakes. So that is my, my, my interpretation of the story. Um, and, you know, they're, they're still trying to qualify the fact that Nintendo gave us some units on consignment before putting up the big display. It's a fascinating one, man. It is, it is. I wonder, like, you know, if any of that- I'm responsible for all you gamers. I'm <laughs> by the way, so a kicker to the story, two kickers to the story. Um, so a little bit later, once we had the point of purchase display up, the same gentleman who, who sold beyond the unit comes in one day and he's like, Psst. It, was like it was like a drug deal, right? It's like, come here, come here. So I come over, like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, I'm going to give you something. No one has this yet, you know, outside of people Nintendo. And he reaches into his coat pocket, again, like a drug, and he pulls out a gold cartridge. And I'm like, what is that? He's like, this is called Legends of Zelda. I'm going to give it to you before we put it on. Go home and play. And this is the reason I'm not a gamer, because I brought, I was living with my girlfriend at that time. I brought it home and I started playing it. And suddenly I was showing up late for work that extended to not showing up to work at all. And my girlfriend worked at F.A.O. Schwartz too. So she's like, what the, right? Uh, so uh, I'm like, you got to try this thing. So she started to play. She started showing up for work. And we're just like, got to get rid of this thing. Got to get rid of this thing. And that was really, that was the extent of, that's one of the reasons why I didn't become a gamer because I knew genetically I had that predisposition to like want that game right in my vein all the time, you know? And I, and I, and I lost track of everything. Um, and you just was going to be counterproductive. As, as, as a comic book drawer, I think that that sort of sensibility is what cartoonists like imbue into their work day. Just take, being able to take that kind of manic, like that obsessive compulsive yeah. energy. And you can at least hedge and say that you're being productive, uh, with, <laughs> with your time yeah. by sitting down at the page, pencil mm -hmm. to paper, a page of comics comes out, you get paid, you pay your rent. Your girlfriend yeah. is happy. You could take her on a date. That's funny. Yeah. I, I was going to ask how, uh, how how selling Nintendo, if any of that translates into today's world. And I feel like that kicker is kind of the translation because I don't play video games unless it's job related. And it's for that reason. Like, what's the best case scenario? I love it. And now I, I become an addict and don't get any work <laughs> well, the, done. The, yeah. What, what, I, what I decided to do is that, that whenever I played video games, I got involved in the video game system. It would be it would only be a sports game because there's a finite end to the game, right? And, and so there isn't a quest or anything like that. Put me on a quest and, and my OCD kicks in and I'm done. Um, but but the, other, the other thing that was important about that time in FAO, and, and actually I, I worked retail for a long time, was learning how to sell, I think inevitably led me to, uh, to my role in, as editor-in-chief at Marvel and finding ways and unique ways to sell our comics uh, with this, you know, this flowering new beautiful thing that we call social media that we all love and has done nothing but improve our planet and our, <laughs> and our, and our, and our love and our love for one another as human beings, you know? Um, but, but, but all those lessons, you know, selling that, selling that NES and saying, you know, take my, because the other thing is, 
I also realized I couldn't sell something that I, I, I'm not a used car. Like, like if, if something's a piece of junk, I would just tell a customer, don't buy that. Really, don't buy it. Trust me. You don't want to, you know, but you gain that level of trust with a customer, especially at FAO when you have regular customers come in, much like comic book folk coming into a store and you're putting your, you know, you're putting reputation on the line and, uh, and hopefully they like what you like. Those comic shop owners are real, usually happy per, to tell you uh, not to buy this comic or that comic also. That's true. That's well, true. yeah, and, but, but, you, but you know what? It's, they're, I've seen that work successfully and also I've seen it work like counterproductive where, where sometimes, you know, there'll be a comic book owner who tells his customers, don't buy that because it's Marvel and it's evil. Right. That's his own personal comic book politics coming into play, as opposed to saying, OK, but if you like if you like this book, here's a book in that genre that is that is just superior quality to that one book that you like. Right. So you're steering customers to to stuff that you think because that that then drives your business. Right. And like, oh, I this this owner or this salesperson you know, they, they understand my taste, right? And, and that every book is for, for everyone. So I, I've, I've seen that happen in two ways. The smart owners, the smart salespeople in comic shops, they, they do that, right? They'll, they'll say, oh, you like you like genre A, here's here's something in genre A, you know, could be by a different company, same company, different creator. And this is like, you know, the pinnacle of pinnacles so in that genre, uh, as opposed to like, you know, uh, DC, you know, those guys are, you know, it, it becomes a personal thing and it's just, that's, yeah, that, you know, that's I, that old school shit, man. Like where where people are like, I'm a Marvel zombie, I'm a DC but, head. It was always funny that, to me. That, like like creators usually aren't that kind of guy. But that's so. I mean, that's okay. I, I don't mind that kind of rivalry rivalry amongst fans because even if you're a Marvel head, you're gonna sneak in some DC stuff. But you're gonna want to hear what's the good DC stuff, right? You like to, you know, and vice versa. It's it's when. It becomes a personal thing, like yo, Marvel's the big, big bad machinery. You know, you don't want to support those guys, right? It's like, well, you know, I understand that, um, but uh, at the same time, if it's a product your customer may like, you should be selling stuff, even if you don't personally like the. You know, I never understood filling your store with Marvel or DC stuff and not liking the company. What's the point if you're not looking to sell those books, right? So. Yeah, that is an interesting thing. Uh, as Ed said, we've all had that experience of buying the wrong book and being told that we're buying the wrong book, and it's kind of like, who's this help? <laughs> but still happens, uh, or at least it used to happen. Making you feel stupid for writing, you know, buying the wrong book. Yeah, totally. We're we're of the image era, by the way. You know, like born in '82, so you know we were right there, man, grabbing the young bloods yeah. and the spawns and all that stuff. So yeah. those old school uh, shop owners yeah. were letting us know the deal. What's what Joe? You got to before do? we cut into uh, more present day, you know, your role in comics these days. I'm kind of curious about your time at SVA. Mm. Um, uh -huh. You graduated, I think, 84, and there's some interesting cartoonists that come out of SVA from the early 80s and some interesting faculty that taught cartooning. I know you were yeah. illustration, but did you happen to interact with any of the cartooning courses or Art Spiegelman, Will Eisner's, any <laughs> of these? Harvey Kurtzman? I, I did. I did. It's a tragic story, actually, because uh, I read comics as a kid, right? And then I've told the story quite often, so I'll tell you guys. Uh, and right around the age of 12, um, I dropped them because I discovered two things that were much more important to me. Uh, and that was baseball and girls and not necessarily in that order. So I dropped them, but I still loved to do artwork. And, and I, and I still felt that comics were so instrumental in the expanding of my imagination and, 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 and the realization that there are no limits, you know, within your artwork. Um, but I wanted to be, when I went to SVA, I wanted to be a 
illustrator in in you know in in the grand sense of the Norman Rockwells and, and Maxwell Parishes and Alphonse Muchas and you know telling a story in one image, right? In a beautifully illustrated image, uh, conveying a feeling in one image. And by the time that I was in college, having, having not read comics since I was 12, my interpretation of comics was, was I was I was a smug a-hole, you know? I just, I looked down at them as just like, eh, it's just a kid's medium. It's not anything that I wanna be involved with. But as, you know, as it might've been, I don't know what year it was in SVA, but I, but I needed to take a few extra classes to fill my curriculum. And I saw that they had some comic book classes. And I'm like, well, you know, what the hell, right? I don't necessarily need the credits, but I got to fill the curriculum. I'm going to take some cartooning classes. And I took Will Eisner's class and I took Harvey Kurtzman's class. And I filmed them both. So. <laughs> Were you in there? Were you in there with guys like Drew Friedman? I'm trying to think of the years. Drew, like, Drew was Drew was a year or two before me, so so I had just missed him. Um, I think he was still in the school when I was there as a as a freshman, but you know, just a lowly freshman. Um, so no, I I just missed him. But but I just want I want to clarify that the reason I failed those classes was because really. I mean, I did work in those classes. I did some humor cartoons. I did some sequential stuff with Eisner. But at the end of the day, you had to hand in a final project uh, in order to get a grade. And I could care less about comics at that time. So I just didn't hand it in. So I got I got a failure, uh, a, a big fat F on that class. So, uh, but the kicker again to that story is uh, years, years later, I am now in San Diego Comic-Con and I'm a professional working artist. And I see Will Eisner there. I haven't seen him since college. And I, I stroll up to Will. It was a party. It might have been an Eisner party. I'm not sure. But it was, it was a party. And I went up to him and I, I introduced myself. Hey, Mr. Eisner, how are you? Uh, I want you to know I, I took your class. And uh, and here I am. I'm a, I'm a working professional. And and and, uh, and thank you. And it's like, oh, cool. I, I, I don't remember you from my class. I'm like, well, that's because I, I failed it. And he got so angry. It was clear that he was not happy with the fact that I'd failed the class. Um, but, you know, I made the effort to say hi. And uh, so that's my, that's my Will Eisner, final Will Eisner story. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the channel is, was sort of um, built upon doing Wizard Magazine reviews. That's how we got our first batch yeah. of uh, followers, man, the kind of nostalgia trip yeah. with that. And uh, not a bad magazine for a good while, and we learned oh, some, we right. learned we learned some things about you, Joe Q, and and one of the things uh, that really fascinated me, and it's a question I always wanted to ask uh, if we ever had this opportunity, uh, right. very very early on, you mentioned uh, you had an agent uh, for for like illustration or, or getting gigs, and that kind of talk was just not done. Right, back right, right, in right. those days. So, does that come from your your kind of illustration practice? The idea of having somebody, you know, juggle potential gigs. Like, what is that? Like, that's it's well, very it, forward thinking. It was. I don't know. Was it at the time? I, I just. I, you know, I, I, it probably comes more from my background in music. Mm. You know, and, and and having, you know, having managers for for my band and and, and my career and stuff. But. Um, but yeah, I just I, I just thought you know it, it was it was a prudent thing to do to try to get better deals and, and sell artwork and stuff and uh, uh, it was just it was just a product of the time. But you know I, I don't I don't recall it as forward thinking. But uh, but thank you for the compliment. Uh, 
you know. And by the way, Wizard Magazine rocked. It really, really, really rocked. You know, I mean, it, 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 it brought such a joy of comics within those pages. I mean, it, it had its necessary evils that you kind of had to deal with in order to get some, you know, some marketing and push for your stuff. But you know, what trade periodical doesn't operate like that? Um, but it was such a product of the time, and I don't think, you know, now, now, you know, in this, in this, you know internet world where you know news is comes at you every 15 minutes uh i don't think a magazine like that could possibly exist unless it was completely rethought and uh and, and gave you added value that you can't get anywhere else but it was awesome man it was awesome did the agent help you get uh the first we'll circle back to nintendo by way of valiant comics and those like game boy super mario uh comics and things man is that something that that your agent got you or did you do any kind of no. other illustration work before you really started jumping into comics professionally the the comics work happened by sheer happenstance so um that's right, so, so i'll back up a little bit so because it actually backs up right back right right back to fao schwartz um i after graduating from college, I did not pick up a pencil and paper for about four years, maybe five years. I was so burned out. You know, I, I, I had to, the only way I could equate it is that when, 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 when I, very early on in my life, when, when I was in, in grammar school, uh, a third grade, they, 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 they identified, my school identified that I had a certain skill for drawing and all and creativity. So, while I was in fourth or fifth grade, I was suddenly, you know, going to the middle school to take art classes, right, with the older kids. And so it was a constant progression where, you know, it, it's kind of like, like, like the kid learns how to play piano and it's, it's, and, and that's, and that's all they do and do until they finally just say, I can't, I, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. So my whole life, it, you know, it was like, you know, scholarships to the Brooklyn Museum of Art and uh, uh, taking advanced life drawing classes. I mean, I was a really little kid when I, when I, you know, saw my first naked lady in the life drawing class. Um, but they kept pushing me and pushing me to do this. Not like I didn't want to do it, but by the time I graduated from SVA, I was completely burned out and I was also madly in love with music, writing music, playing music, uh, and just said that this is what I want to do, much to the you know chagrin of my dad who really wanted me to be an illustrator. Uh, and to do to, to continue that sort of rock and roll existence, I would work crappy retail jobs. And uh, and so I ended up uh, at FAO Schwartz and, and there was a kid that worked in the stock room who would I, and again, I, I was always kind of doodling on napkins. It was like, you know, I just to kill time, just, you know, those mindless sort of line doodles that you do. And every once in a while, I do like a quick portrait of, you know, salesperson in the, in the stuffed animal department or whatever it may be. And there was a stock boy who, who worked in the basement and he would, you know, we'd bring up stock and then he'd look over my shoulder and he'd see that I was doodling. And I was like, you know, who's, who's this weird kid? Uh, and then one day he just got the nerve to, 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 to say to me, he's like, you know, those are really good drawings. I'm like, he's like, you should be drawing comics for a living. And I looked at him like, why? It's, it, it, you know, I, again, I, I just had this snobbish idea of what comics were. And I'm like, you know, it's a kid's me. And he's like, mm -mm -mm. he's like, I'm going to get you something. I'll bring it back tomorrow. So he, the next day, he, there was a forbidden planet. Uh, one of their one of their locations was right by F.A. Shores. So he had gone to Forbidden Planet, he'd come back and he handed me issue number one of Return of the Dark Knight. He said, read this. 
And I did. And the next morning I was just like, it's like I'd been to the mountaintop. So the story goes on where I go and I start collecting comics at this point, right? So, so, so now I'm hooked on comics because these are not the comics I remember as a little kid. Um, so what, now, what, I mean, what kind of comics were you messing with, man? Like Grendel and stuff like that, or sticking with? No, no, no. What, 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 what? I, all right. So, so here's the full story. So, so I read Dark Knight. And I'm like, oh, what? Um, so I go to Forbidden Planet. I'm broke, right? I'm working retail. Literally, I have no money. So I go to Forbidden Planet and I look and I'm like, whoa, comics have become expensive. Sound familiar, <laughs> right? And and I had literally had enough money to buy one book, if I, if I recall, because it wasn't payday. So I looked at the comic rack and this one book caught my eye and I took it, I purchased it, I brought it home, I read it. And I'm like, wow, oh my God, what has happened to this industry? It is, this is like the most, it's like reading movies on paper. And that happened to be Watchmen that I picked up. And I read it and I didn't realize it was a second issue. And I'm like, oh, there's a first issue? So on payday, I ran over to Forbidden Planet and, and I sort of budgeted. I said, okay, I have enough money because damn, these things are expensive. <laughs> I have enough money to buy 10 books. So I'm going to go and, and, and fall on my old favorites. That's what I remember from childhood. I'm going to buy five Marvels, five DCs. Of course, amongst that, those five DCs, there was Watchmen number one, which I read and devoured with holy mackerel. And, and reading the two companies... Also, what became clear was, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Okay, this, this stuff is still pretty good, but this is nothing like Dark Knight and Watchmen, right? This, this stuff is like a whole other level. And it occurred to me that what I, was, what I happened to just pick up by happenstance or be given by happenstance was the, the, the very creme of the creme of the, of the best stuff that was being created, created at that moment. And everything else was sort of like the monthly, not terrible, but workaday stuff. Um, and, and I also noticed the Marvel stuff, the stories were kind of weak, but the artwork was beautiful. And the DC stuff, there was more care taken to the, to the, to the writing and the artwork, artwork was kind of like pedestrian, you know, just, just your, your regular everyday superhero stuff. But I grad, gravitated as an artist though, you would think I would go towards the Marvel side of it, right? With all the cool artists they have, but instead I wanted stories. I wanted, I wanted to spend my money on on stories that were going to take me to different places and, you know, had, had structure to them. So, um, so that's kind of how I started reading comics and that habit started to grow. And what I would do is I, I would, once I, once I read through my stack of books, I would make a stack of the stuff that I felt was exceptional. And then the other stack was just the, the, the regular everyday monthly stuff. Right. And then, you know, the same, the same writers, tended to appear in that exceptional, you know, pile, right? There was the Frank Miller, it was the Neil Gaiman's, uh, Alan Moore's. I mean, I had to go back and get, and, and, and get Miracle Man, right? Because, oh my God, uh, uh, Howard Chaikin and, and, and uh, Denny O'Neill and Archie. I mean, so, so, you know, the same, the same quality writers started popping up there. And, and in my mind, because I like to, uh, I've always role modeled, um, I started setting up in my, in my head, I'm like, I think I want to try to get into this industry. Aside from music, I think I want to try, but I need to really educate myself first. And I really need to um, learn the language of comics, relearn the language of comics. So that's what I did without really having any sort of plan of how am I going to get into this industry? 
So now I leave FAO Schwarz and I'm working in another retail location. It's like a lighting design store. And a, and a, and a, and a guy comes in and a uh, really nice guy. We start chatting and he's looking to, he just moved into a new studio apartment and he has a, you know, a floor plan. He's like, I'm, I'm looking for some cool lighting for my, for my place. Um, and I said, okay, leave it here. Come back tomorrow and I'll design something for you. So came back as I'm looking at, at his floor plan, I noticed that there is a, you know, he grew it himself and, and there's a little block there that says drawing table, right? I'm like, oh, this guy's an artist. So he comes back the next day, we talk a little bit and I'm like, all right, let me ask the question. You're an artist? He's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, cool, what do you do? He's like, I work in comic books and my jaw, of course, drops to the floor. I'm like, really? Uh, what do you work for, Marvel, DC? He's like, no, I'm working for this new startup called Valiant, I'm their art director. His name is Art Nichols. And I'm like, oh, I said, dude, I just, I just started reading comics over the last few years, getting re, re, you know, just excited about them again. And, and, and I really want to break in. Any advice? You know, he's like, well, what do you do? I said, look, I'm an artist. And uh, he said, well, why don't you bring your portfolio over to Valley and I'll take a look at it. Like, I don't have any complex stuff. It's just, it's just fully painted illustration from several years back when I graduated college. I said, perfect. We're actually hiring painters to do coloring on comics. So I took my portfolio down to the Valley. They hired me on the spot as a, as a colorist. Um, and I started working there and, and dropped, never worked retail again. And slowly but surely as comics started to become more and more successful for me, I become less and less interested uh, in playing the push pull game of the music industry. And that's kind of, you know, where, where everything started for me right then and there. Uh, and then there's, you know, the story about getting laid off and, but that's really sort of the beginning. So there was no agent involved. It was just, it was just right person, right time, uh, doors opening and, and, and just sort of taking the shot, you know. Did you learn a lot from working in that Valiant studio system for, for a little bit? Was Jim Shooter around? Were you able to pick the brains of some of these veterans? Big storytelling guy, that Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter was, was, was there. Um, and I, I, would, I learned more from i mean i mean i mean jim would 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 hold court late at night right if it was late night we work and he would tell some some stories um but i've learned more from the pencilers that came in because that's that's ultimately what i don't want to be a colorist i wanted to be a penciler right that's that's and then I, but i wanted to write my own stuff i wanted to be you know i want to be frank miller i want to be an auteur and uh so when pencilers would come in um Again, as I mentioned, I, 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 role modeling is a big part of, I think, where I garnered whatever success I may have garnered in this industry. And, and, and that happens by asking questions of people who are in a situation where um, they, have a, they have a particular you know, success story or a modicum of success. You're like, you know, I, I want to be at that echelon or I want to be the next echelon. And, but the questions I always ask, because the, the typical questions would be, tell me how you got your start. Tell me about, you know, tell me about, Tell, tell me about that story that you drew. And my questions would always be, tell me about where you screwed up, right? Tell me about where you stumbled. Because if you, if you, if you ask those questions, you'll be surprised that almost anybody who's successful is ready and willing to tell you their failures, right? Because it just amplifies how much struggle they had to go to, through to, to, to get to that level of success, right? So it's, it's really a part of their origin story. And if you if you ask those questions and you listen very carefully, and you and 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 take them as questionnaire tales, inevitably, 
the, the stories you hear are things that you may and most likely will confront at some point in your career. And if you're listening and, 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 and you know, and, and you recognize, oh, I'm at that point that so-and-so is at, and they ran right into the edge of the, 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 the edge of the blade, I know it's coming. So I'm just going to step a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left and avoid that. And even with building my portfolio, uh, I was able to build a prop portfolio based on all the horror stories that these writers, these artists were telling me about portfolio reviews and how different companies handled each of their portfolio reviews. Um, so I was able to hone my, my portfolio into something that was easily digestible and, and, and commercially you know, saleable. Um, but that's really, that's really where, where I gained a ton of knowledge was talking to, to, to those artists that came in talking to Art Nichols and just even that whole studio environment. I think there's a lot to be said for an actual bullpen environment. I think, I think everybody elevates their game in time. I mean, you know, for, for better or for worse, CrossGen did a very good job. No, listen, CrossGen did a very good job of creating a bullpen where young artists came in who had no real name recognition or, or weren't at a, at a super, you know, high level of time and suddenly became high level artists because they were working with seasoned professionals who were also upping their game, right? To keep, to keep up with everybody. And there was, you know, it, it's, I don't even know if it's used competition, but there's just this group atmosphere where like, we're all going to get better, right? I'm looking over your, as long as everybody's collaborative and willing to share, I think there's so much to say about that kind of, uh, of a working environment for creatives. I feel like uh, a lot of cartoonists, artists, uh, visually oriented, man. So you like learn by seeing, right. if I see you do a demo, I might be able to do that feathering line. The, uh, yeah. the, the, the Valiant Bullpen, nah, bro. You remember that shit, <laughs> yeah. dude? Oh, well. and, and, and by the way, I have to say that, that, that when they called us knobs, uh, I found that so ridiculously demeaning because the reason, you know why they called us knobs, right? Because you could tweak this person a little this way, tweak this little person a little bit this way. And it just, it just, but it wasn't said with, 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 with love and concern. It was really more, you know, so, so it was, I hated that term. Yeah, we, did, uh, we didn't read it with, uh, with love and, and uh, I, I just, you, you never know. I mean, you know, but, but it, it, it was a bullpen. It was a bullpen. And, you know, we had people like Janet Jackson who were teaching us color, color theory, uh, comics. Um, it was just, it was a great environment from that point of view. And, and just a bunch of, bunch of loser artists just hanging out and uh, you know trying to make the best of it did you ever have steve ditko pop in do you have a personal steve ditko story i do not i do not i've never met steve yeah did valiant change joe because you you were there very early in their run and then you come back i don't know a couple of years later did you notice a big difference there um you know post jim shooter or something oh of course we, we were only doing nintendo comics when i was there so um we were doing nintendo comics and again, I, I you know, I, I was there, I was, I was I was still a young dude, but I came with the modicum of some business sense, not a lot, but some. And they were paying colorists. Okay, so, so it's it's fully painted watercolor coloring on these Nintendo pages. They wanted to have like a unique look for these books. And instead of paying colorists by the page, they were paying us by the hour. Right. So, so, so that's mistake number one. Mistake number two, this is 1989 maybe, and they were paying us $14 an hour in 1989. 
That is an exorbitant amount of money for a bunch of young guys and gals that are just sitting there. So, but, but again, I, 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 I was cranking through about four pages a day because, you know, I, I still came with sort of this business sense that this stuff's got to get done. My buddies who were sitting across from me and dialed, they were taking like two or three days on a page. And I, I remember having lunch. We, we all went to lunch at the Cadillac bar, which no longer exists. It was like a block away from the office. And, and I said, guys, I was, probably, I was the oldest person in that group. Uh, they were all just out of college. So I, I'd already been out of college and, and, and faced a little bit of the real world. I sat there and said, I said, folks, you know this is unsustainable, right? Are you putting your money away? Put your money away because these books are not selling and they're paying us $14 an hour. And, and some of these books aren't even getting done on a timely basis. Save your money. And I was like probably four months into my gig at Valiant and elevator door opens and like, four guys or I don't know it was four but gentlemen in business suits with briefcases walk in and they immediately go into the conference room and I see the president of Valiant go into the conference room and I see Jim Shooter go into the conference room and I'm like this is not good uh, and it turned out that those were the investors and they had some big meeting and it wasn't too long after that that Shooter called for a staff meeting everybody right all hands on deck in the conference room and we're all sitting there and he announces that three quarters of the staff has to get laid off because they're just spending money inappropriately and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he said, oh, you know, sorry, but last person in, first person out. So, you know, being one of the relatively new employees, you know, I was let go on the spot. Um, but I, I, I got it. I understood, you know, this was out of my control. And then at the same time, it's business is business. So, uh, yeah, you know, $14 an hour coloring. <laughs> they were, the colors were probably making more money than the pencilers were on the page by, by the time they got done with those pages it, it, it's always funny like just thinking about like those those companies and and the amount of capital involved and how they put on their power suits pull back their ponytails and go get these guys to put in you know a, a couple million dollars into a kitty and then when you reverse engineer like what it takes to put a comic book together you know publish a you know thing for two thousand yeah. bucks like maybe you know trip double that triple that for the creative talents involved like it's not that much right yeah. it's once well, you start buying like the overhead uh you the know office the, building exactly the building exactly. with the elevator right. to have that bullpen that the roof above <laughs> the bullpen well, is where you start to get into some money yeah but understand also that those, those books were licensed right so nintendo was getting you know their their you know their cut of it um and the the superhero universe hadn't started yet and that's my my one big recollection of shooter was the, the, the art space, the office space at Valiant was essentially a classic loft, right? So, so it was just sort of railroady, wasn't quite a rail, but, but it was, it was, it was definitely, you know, it, it was definitely a, well, I don't know, longer on one side than it was wider. Um, so I'll call it a railroady kind of space. At the very end of one space near the elevators, it was a big, big wooden desk. And that's where Shooter sat, right? Shooter sat, you know, like he was, you know, like the king would sit, right, if the, in, in his kingdom. And he would always have his feet up on his desk and a legal pad. And he was constantly writing stuff. You know, and he'd stick up his head every once in a while and say, hey, how you doing? But he was just writing, writing. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, what is this dude writing? What he was writing was the beginning of the, of the Valiant universe. He was, he was taking all those characters and the connectivity and the licensed characters that we're going to have, like, like Magnus and Solar. Uh, and he was, he was just 
brainstorming it all on that legal pad all by himself. So I'm sure the, 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 the investors came in and said, when are we getting this stuff? Right. And, uh, and that's, you know, so I, I get laid off and eventually I end up working in comics. And then shortly after that, or you start seeing the, the, the beginnings of the Valiant universe start to bubble up. And, and, and as a reader, I was finding a lot of that stuff really, really exciting because it had, it had the energy, the superhero energy of Marvel, um, but they were striving for the writing quality of DC at the time. So, you know, when they, you know, when I started talking to them about doing projects for them, it felt like coming home, but it also felt like I was landing in some place that was really doing something innovative, but like, you know, all things, you know, there many people come in, things change and, you know, it, it, if, uh, depending on what your goals are, if your goals are just to build it and, and, and get bought out, you know, doesn't necessarily enhance the creativity. Uh, but if you're looking for the long haul and create something really substantial, that would have been really cool. It would have been interesting to see where the value universe ended up truly. Part of going through Wizard, it's been it was an interesting revelation, kind of how small that Valiant window was. You know, yeah. it's, it's my memory of it is it lasted a long time, but you go back and see, and it's like it's a pretty small window whenever they're really clicking and and uh, yeah. you know, kind of kind of at their best. Yeah, once once you know, Shooter got jettisoned, and then eventually, it eventually, just became about. Again, I, you know, a lot of this is, is from the outside looking in, right? So I, I can't tell you this is incontroversially. Well, this is exactly what's happening. But it started to feel like, okay, they're, they're building up the IP just to sell the whole darn thing. Uh, and once they sell the whole darn thing, you know, depending on who's left to run the creative, it's either going to continue or it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually just, it just sort of, I think they got ahead of their skis. So... Early 90s there, you've done work at DC with Azrael, you've done work at Marvel with X-Factor, you've done work at Valiant with Ninjak, and eventually you decide to start self-publishing with Event and Ash, right. and it's kind of like when the comics market is imploding, that, that getting into the yeah. mid-90s. What, yeah. what, what was that time period like, and were you like uh, having second thoughts on self-publishing? What do you remember from that implosion? You know, I, I remember Jimmy and I having this conversation you know, should, should we, should we be starting a company right now when it's possibly the worst climate in the, you know, in the history of comics to start a company? I remember just telling, telling Jimmy, I don't know, I can't think of a better time. I don't know what I was saying or talking about. It just sounded like the right thing to say. Um, but it ended up working out for us in, in, in a lot of respects. Um, you know, we had the opportunity, uh, you know, I, after the image guys exploded onto the scene with image, then they, they, they were looking for wave two talent, right? But, but wave two talent, it wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, wave two, like you could come in and, and, and start your own thing. It was more like, Hey, I need somebody to draw my books from you. So I want to, uh, I want to poach top talent here, top talent there. Uh, and they were offering astronomical page rates, to do this thing. And, you know, and, and I had gotten a call to see if I was interested. And, you know, that, that, that would have involved Jimmy as well, of course, because he was my anchor. And my, my thought at the time was, um, if I do this, I will, my, my career will take a path where I am, I'll be known as, you know, let's say it was Jim, I'm not going to say who called, but I'll be known as Jim Lee's guy, right? Or I'll be known as Todd McFarlane's guy. I, I won't be known as myself. So Jimmy and I talked this out and I said, I'm going to turn down. I'm going to, I'm going to turn down because it was big money real fast. Uh, 
and and again through 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 the role modeling I've done, you know, for myself over the years, I I, I always wanted to take the 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 longer, more sustained path, right? The the, the one that may be harder to, to to manage through, but will lead to a more sustained career. I uh, said, so let, let's let's be our own people, you know. We we started talking about um, we started talking about events. At, at a point where we were still on good terms with Valiant and we met with Bob Layton and the team there. And we said, we've got this character, Ash, and we'd like to, we love working in Valiant and we'd like to do a co-publishing venture where Ash exists in the, in the Valiant universe. And, you know, we, we understand, you know, Valiant will own a piece, but, you know, we'll own a piece as well. And we think, we think it's got legs and, you know, it could be a good movie property. And they were like, yeah, yeah awesome and then literally overnight they were like nope we're not going to do it and that was the point where jimmy and i were like we're going to publish this ourselves we're going to start our own company let's just do it right and that's when the industry started imploding and you know uh it was literally every month watching sales go down and down and i remember being up at the marvel offices and, and seeing you know the business heads panicking about stuff saying well this is this is clearly rock bottom and then the next month would come in and it'd be even worse it's like oh my god where is rock bottom um but yeah so 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 there were there was there was the offering of ash to valiant uh they're they're turning it down and then us saying screw it let's do our own thing you know and but again the, the calls from image had come um and said you know that the, that the long-term money was 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 better than the than the quick so what were uh, the the uh, event books? You had Ash, Painkiller Jane, uh, Kid Death and Fluffy, yes. Twenty Two Brides. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. And and uh, you said could be a good movie property. Was that was that a little bit of uh, inspiration, like to, to sort of create for Ash? For, for Ash, no. The, we, we just we just had the IP. We liked the idea, and we thought, wow, this 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 could be something, right? Uh, and then, yeah, it, it did get optioned and, and it didn't get made, but it got optioned, but that was, it wasn't constructed to be, uh, uh, a, you know, a play for Hollywood. Uh, the, the actual, you know, when we got that call from Hollywood. It literally came out of nowhere. We were not expecting, I mean, we had two, we had two issues published. I think I believe two issues at that time, maybe it was more, but it, it, it you know, between two and four, we're like, whoa. Um, and that was, you know, again, very, very unexpected at the time. Would this be an era where you're kind of commiserating with caliber comics, dude, like uh, 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 Brian Michael Bendis, who has his Hollywood, you know, cup of coffee or whatever at that time also? No, I, I didn't. I didn't know. I did not know Brian until I was editor in chief. I see. Actually, that's not true. I didn't know Brian until. No, yeah, yeah. Just just I became an editor in chief. Yes. Yeah. So I, I did not ever run into uh, Brian. I did know David Mack, but but who, you know. It's obviously tied with Brian, but I, he never introduced me to Brian until I was editor-in-chief. Yeah, I wish somebody would do a caliber history because there's so much talent that comes through that. And uh, talk about a company that's not mentioned once in Wizard Magazine for yeah. some reason. <laughs> and yet you have the David Max and the Bendises and Ogar yeah. and all these guys coming out of there. It's like the little company that could. Um, Joe, from there, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of get into Marvel Knights uh, fr from event. Is that about the right timeline? Yeah. Yeah, it was in probably uh, late nineteen ninety seven, early nineteen ninety eight, around there, that uh, that we get approached by Marvel to uh, to create an imprint for them. 
And what's the deal? It's like uh, you have some administration, like, do they look at your administrative talents by by publishing event comics? And they're like, hey, we're going to give you a couple titles. How does how does something like that go down? It, it went down again through 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 one of the things, you know, event comics. We, we had no money. We had no money for, for a marketing budget, but we had ourselves and we and we knew how to throw awesome parties. And we had a bar in New York that basically loved us and, and would give us carte blanche to do whatever we wanted, uh, much to the point where people thought we owned the bar. Uh, so we would throw these outrageous parties, right? Parties that you couldn't possibly throw today. Maybe you could, but, uh, and, and so that would get us, you know, it was guerrilla marketing and that would, get, you know, and, and, and of course, folks from Wizard would come to the parties because they heard they were cool. Folks from Combo Magazine would show me, all, all the, the comic book press would come editors from Marvel, editors from DC. It was just sort of a way for us to schmooze. And, and we had, they were, these, these were all friends. We really liked these folks, right? So it was, it was a good time. The comic book industry was really centered. If you love comics and want to support Cartoonist Kayfabe, buy our books. Red Room, the anti-social network, collects Ed's first four issues of the modern outlaw comic Red Room, Murder on the Dark Web for fun and profit. This is available now wherever books are sold, including your local comic book shop. You can request it if it's not already on their shelf. Four great issues of comics and art and a lot of great back matter, including this first written draft of Red Room. Some notes from Ed on the making of this book. Starting in March, Trigger Warnings. The second season of Red Room will begin, and this is the cover to look for whenever you go to your local comic shop in March looking for Red Room. If you haven't already had that added to your subscription box, look for this cover on the shelves March 9th. These are the variants that are available for Red Room. A second variant here by Ed Piscor. Peach Momoko, The Cottage Industry, and my homage to Robert Crumb's Zap Comics. These will all be available at your better comic book shops starting in March. And if you can't wait until March, you can join Ed on Patreon to read Red Room Comics ahead of time, dropping every Tuesday. Three bucks gets you the archive there, and that link is in the link tree below this video. My next comics project, Hulk Grand Design Monster, will be hitting comic shops in March. This is what I did for lockdown, Ed. I yes, locked sir. myself in a room for a year I, with 500 issues of The Incredible Hulk, and I distilled the Hulk's story, the first 40 years of the Hulk, into two standalone issues, Hulk Grand Design Monster, Hulk Grand Design Madness. These will be coming out in March and April 2022. Tell your local comic shops you want a copy to pre-order a copy for you to put it in your pool box. And uh, issue number one, Monster, has some great variants, including this gem from Ed, Peach Momoko doing her take on She-Hulk, and Marcos Martin with the classic Hulk transformation from Meek Bruce Banner into the Incredible Hulk there. These are not retailer incentives, which means if you like one of these covers better than my cover, tell your local comic shop that you want it, and they can pull that for you at no extra price, but you got to let them know ahead of time. So let those comic shop knows what you want for Hulk Grand Design right now and now back to our regular scheduled program here's where we left off uh yep. you and jimmy palmiotti are the two guys in the comic book industry who have some social skills so <laughs> so you put together really fly parties at a bar yep that uh these other these other guys come come to and and uh you know like with this in mind this is mentioned a little bit in that sean howe marvel untold stories book uh -huh. and i wonder if you uh 
if you agree with his his interpretation of events that you he basically says in in that book that you you guys are connected with wizard you guys are connected uh in some tangential way with some hollywood peeps and uh marvel wants some of that uh so so uh what do you say yeah I, I i mean we our connection to hollywood was 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 pretty linear with just dreamworks i mean we you know, DreamWorks uh, uh, optioned Ash, and that was it. That, that's our whole connection to Hollywood. Um, but we were connected to Wizard and and, and to every trade periodical uh, and, and became friends with, you know, reporters there and stuff. And listen, I, you know, that, that you know, while we couldn't afford to take out ads in Wizard, we would at least get press because folks wanted to promote us because they, 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 they liked this or, or, you know, they, they, they saw something in what, what our product was. And, and the fact that we cared about what we we're doing, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, yes, we wanted to make money, but it wasn't a gross money grab, right? If I wanted a money grab, I would have gone to work for, for other companies. Um, but through those connections to Wizard, uh, Joe Calamari, who was the president of Mar Marvel at the time, yes, and we did call him Joe, Joey Squid. <laughs> so Joey Squid, uh, wonderful man. Uh, and he, again, he was president of Marvel at the time, and he was very good friends with Gary Seamus. And, and so he asked Gary, he said, listen, I need an infusion. I need an injection of something, right? We're, 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 we're not getting out of this rut that we're in. And who do you know? And so Gary made a few suggestions, and he suggested Jimmy and I, he's like, because of the fact that we're just able to market on our on just sheer energy and 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 you know and buybacks and uh, uh, <laughs> and and just you know hanging out and, and and taking the time to talk to creators and, and become friends with creators uh, and being a part of that scene. And so Joe called us in for a meeting. We had, we had dinner, and we you know he he essentially talked to us about what you know what would we want to do at Marvel? What would it take? Uh, so it was it was a very very sort of surface meeting, you know, just batting ideas back and forth, and him asking us, you know, what what do we think Marvel needs? How do we think Marvel can improve? Um, so we left that meeting knowing that we were going to get together again and discuss what the deal was, what what we thought we could do. So the the, the second dinner was scheduled, and. Uh, all this stuff. I mean, I, I, my apartment at the time was situated literally like across, you know, across the avenue from the bar where all the parties took place, three blocks away from Marvel and around the corner from the restaurant where we were meeting with Joey Squid. So, so you know, before we had that second dinner, you know, Jimmy comes in from Brooklyn and we're sitting in my apartment and, and we're, we're just strategizing on what we're going to say. And, you know, we, over that time period, we knew that we were going to Daredevil. We had to have Daredevil. It was, it was super important. If there was no Daredevil, there's no deal. Because um, we, we felt strongly about the character. Same thing with Black Panther, right? They, we, we just felt there was, these were untapped, you know, aside from, you know, some, a few great sto story, Daredevil stories here and there, there's a lot of untapped potential in the character and in Black Panther. And Punisher was a, was a Jimmy favorite, you know, because he worked on that book for a long time as an inker. And Inhumans was something that we just remembered fondly from the, the, the Kirby era. We just loved the look of those characters weren't quite sure what to do with them, but you know, we, we thought, why not, right? Nobody's doing anything with them. And the other thing is that we knew Marvel wasn't gonna give us Spider-Man or any of the top tier characters. They'd just gone through the whole Heroes Reborn thing with, uh, with the image guys, um, but they weren't gonna do that. And, and which was fine with us because we're like, you know what? If we could make Daredevil really successful, 
uh, that says a lot more than selling a lot of Spider-Man, you know, it's, which is you know already successful. So, uh, so as we prepped for the for the dinner and exactly what we're going to ask for, uh, I said, okay, so, uh, but we're not going to ask for these four titles. And she's like, what? I said, no, we're going to ask for the whole thing. I said, what? I'm like, yeah, we're just we're just gonna, when he asks us what we want to do, we're just going to say. It's easy. Make us co-editor in chief, and we'll fix the whole line, the whole damn thing. Just make us co-editor. And Jimmy starts laughing. I'm like, I know he's not going to give it to us, but then when we ask for four titles, that'll seem a lot more manageable, right? So we we laughed a lot about it. Then we went to the dinner, and uh, we're sitting there with Joe, and Joe's like, All right, so what do you what do you guys want to do? I said, uh, I gave him the whole spiel. Make us co-editor in chiefs, and we'll fix the whole thing. And Joe starts laughing, and he says. Um, how about if I give you four titles? You know, we didn't even have to offer. <laughs> so he already had four titles in his head anyway, right? So, uh, so he understood the joke. And then we just asked for, you know, the characters and, and uh, they agreed to them. So, uh, it did, it, so it came through a recommendation from Garib. He said, you should talk to these guys. But what people forget, or don't remember, is that when, when Jimmy and I got the Marvel Knights packaging deal, Chaos Comics, Brian Polito and Chaos Comics, who were red hot, right? And, you know, before the crash, they got a package deal too. So, so they had a deal, we had a deal. Um, but nobody remembers that from back in the day. Did his stuff uh, come out? It did. It did. Yeah. Wow. Check it out. Yeah. Yeah. What I, forget, you, do you I, forget what, I forget what their imprint was called, but, but they had an imprint too. Yeah. So, right? See, I, I, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, what? Yeah. You're um, making us but, look bad with this, Joe. <laughs> no, listen, listen. It's not only you. People just don't don't remember, right? And uh, it's, uh, it, it's what is that, the Vendela effect? Or exactly. Whatever? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this actually happened. Um, and uh, because Garib had recommended Brian as well. Because Brian, I mean, who is a better guerrilla marketer than Brian Polito at that time, right? The guy's a beast, Right, selling, you know, early lady, lady death. I mean, he was just. And by the way, he keeps it up today. He was just doing doing his, you know, his crowdfunding stuff. I mean, he's he's like he's he's legendary at that stuff. He's a, a great salesman. So so yeah, so that that happened during that time too. I need to stack his oh, characters up against yours. Hang on, hang on. I, I just remembered there was one, and there was a third imprint that was launched, and this was given to uh, a, a letterer in the Marvel bullpen who pitched. A, an imprint based upon the, the the robotic tech characters, and that was called the M Tech M Tech line. Uh, that didn't last very long either. But that was all around the same period that Marvel was trying these different imprints, uh, and Marvel Knights is the one that sort of you know survived. That poor letterer got no juice in those pages of Wizard Magazine. Man. <laughs> <laughs> none, none, none. Nobody, nobody could figure out how that deal happened. To be honest with you, um, but it did so. Guy in a bullpen sounds like right place, right time, maybe. Martin Goodman's great-grandson or some <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, Joe, by all accounts, you know, you, your, your ascension to editor-in-chief, I feel like, has been tremendously successful. Uh, you know, was there a mandate when you showed up? Was there a mission statement that either you had or Marvel kind of had for you in that role in the first, you know, couple years? Yeah, let's not go out of business. That was basically it. I mean, I'll 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 be I'll be honest with you. When 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 Bill Jemis offered me the job as editor in chief, 
um, my immediate knee-jerk reaction was to say no for, for, for a couple of reasons. One was it would be, I would be pulled out of Marvel Knights, right? So essentially they're hiring me away from my own company because Marvel Knights was a separate imprint run by Event Comics, right? Event Comics was, was getting paid. We, we, I wasn't a staff member. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating little piece that, that I don't think very many people know that, that as Event Comics, you were like the complete packagers. It, it was not just a gig yeah. at Marvel Comics. No, I mean, it, it may have seemed that way because we, we offered to move into the offices. Because we had known again, this is a this is a, this is the role the, the role modeling aspect, right? We were freelancers. Jimmy and I were freelancers, and then had our own company event when Image was doing the hero the heroes reborn thing. So we would talk to Marvel editors and hear how they were all fearing that their their jobs were on the line, that they were going to be fired soon. There was a lot of insecurity because of that image stuff going on, and also for the business folks at Marvel. Some of that image stuff was coming in really late, and there, were, there was there, were, there was a lot of bad blood there. And, and and talking to one of the business heads at Marvel, a lot of that came out of the distance, right? They were in LA, Marvel was in New York, and so that distance was causing, you know, in between that distance was insecurity for both parties, right? The image didn't trust Marvel, Marvel didn't trust Image, and so on. So as Jimmy and I discussed this deal, and I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that with our meeting with Calamari, we asked for four titles, and we said, look just just to make life easier give us office space at marvel we will work and do these books at marvel and we will become part of the family so that everyone see that we're we are part of the family we're all trying to dig out of this thing together and they did they gave us this wonderful office space at the top of the building uh and we 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 worked out of there and uh it wasn't quite you know wine and roses in the very beginning uh until we threw a pizza party and then things changed uh but uh but yeah so we were not a part of Marvel. We, we would we would get paid as a packager on delivery of a book. Here's a Daredevil issue. Here's a check, right? Um, and the other thing that we we asked for, we, we actually forced guardrails upon ourselves. We said, we want to go through everything that a Marvel editor has to do to get a book approved and a script approved. We need to go through that same gauntlet so that no one in Marvel could say that we were getting preferential treatment. So we did. We had to run through every gauntlet, plus they added a few more. So we had to go even through more stringent sort of quality assurance kind of things than a regular Marvel editor had to go through. Joe, and that Punisher book still got through with the, with the Death Angel gimmick? <laughs> no, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting that uh, Event is a separate entity, and, and it brings me to a question that I've heard a lot over the last maybe as long as I've been a comics reader. And that's the idea of Marvel. Do you ever see Marvel licensing out its entire comic book production, sort of like they did with Event, but on a wider scale? Is that something that comes up that you guys talk about? Well, first of all, you're, 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 you're asking me to divulge sort of insider okay. information, right? No. That, it, it's, that, that is strictly internet rumor garbage. It really is. You know, it, it, it's... Don't believe the hype. Don't believe, can I just say this? And I've said it many, many times before and I'll say it on your show. Not that it makes a difference or it'll help. I have been in, involved in just about every aspect of the entertainment business right, in one way or another. I have never met an industry as a whole that is more, uh, just, just, just more elated to predict its own demise year after year after year. Do you know how long I've been hearing 
Comics are over. Comics are dead. Nobody's buying comics anymore. Now, listen, there was a time, right? There was a time when the, when the, when the bubble collapsed where you could say that, and it was a general concern. But after that, it has never been a concern. It is not an issue. The industry is not going out of business. Are there comics that maybe you don't like as an older reader because they're meant for a younger? Probably. But so what? The industry moves on, right? It moves on and moves on. When I, when I came in as editor-in-chief, there were a lot of old readers who hated these new Marvel comics. Hell, there was a prominent creator who hated these new Marvel comics, this new style of storytelling. Wasn't was it his kind of comics, but they sold like crazy, right? Because we had an audience out there that wanted those new comics. And, and, and back to your question about, about the mandate. Um, like I said, the mandate was, let's not go out of business. How do we rebuild this thing, right? Um, you know, and, and when I was offered the job, my immediate instinct was to say no, because I, I, I'd be hired away from my company. And, uh, and do, would, I be, would I be taking the, the, the best seat on the Titanic and be known as the last editor-in-chief who put Marvel out of business? Uh, I remember talking to my wife that weekend about it and telling her exactly this. I, I said, you know, it's the best seat on Titanic. And she said, it may be, but if you don't take it, who does? And better the devil you know, right? <laughs> she said, you know, you, you've, you've built things, rebuilt things, you've done this. Go for it, you know? And that was it. That's all I needed to hear. Um, and so that's what we started to do. Let's talk about some of that sexy stuff that you did, man, by bringing in like fresh creators who had some some juice on that indie on that indie circuit, man. The low life guy, Ed Brubaker, is going <laughs> to become like one of the more more prominent Marvel writers. Like, are you kidding me? Like, who could foresee that in the in the Magic Eight Ball? Brian Michael Bendis, David Mack. Uh, I mean, Mike Allred. Mike Allred, Eric yeah. Shanover was doing stuff on the indie. Richard Corbin. Yeah. Richard Corbin, goddamn it, that might be Axel, but uh, if you want to take credit, <laughs> you can take credit. But maybe well, yeah, no, I mean, Axel. Listen, I, listen a, a lot. Of, yeah, I mean, we 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 poached Axel from DC. I knew he was the best editor they had, right? So so you look part of part of the goal of being in charge of at least the way I see it, of being in charge of any any business unit, especially a creative one, is to you know you gotta be able to to to, to check your ego and insecurities at the door. And hire people that are much more talented than you because they'll ultimately make you look good in the end, right? So hire great writers to write great stories, right? And, and hire great editors to, to, to guide great writers. Axel is a tremendous story editor. And, and you know, the fact that he, he had, you know, have Corbin, you know, do a gig for us. You know, the, the, the one part of this that I could take credit for was say, yeah, get him. Right. Because, you know, somebody else may have said nah, it's not going to sell. Um, but Corbin brought a whole different dimension right? because he's Richard Corbin. Um, but with respect to Ed Brubaker, though, I, I do want to correct me. Ed was working at DC. At DC. He was oh, doing some great work at DC. But what Ed, when he came to Marvel, you know, the, the view on Ed was, well, well, this guy, he's a crime guy, right? He writes crime noir. Um, he's going to do what? On Captain? How's he going to possibly write Captain America? I don't think there's been a better Captain America ever written than, than Ed Brubaker. I mean, Brubaker, Brubaker's knowledge of writing, his structure, his 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 ability to 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 
tell so much in so little, right? That 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 talent of brevity is spectacular. I mean, he is truly one of the best pure writers in the comic industry. He doesn't write a bad story ever, ever, right? It may not, you know, some things may be more commercial than others, but there is not, there's no such thing as a bad Ed Woodbaker story. Joe, one of the things we were looking into uh, kind of prepping to talk to you is what exactly you do uh, these days in regards to the comic book <laughs> side of Marvel. Can you give us yeah. an overview of that? I do this. I just talk to people about, about <laughs> what I used to do. No, I mean, look, I, I, the thing about once, once I left the position as editor-in-chief, just about everything that I was working on was stuff that was behind the scenes and long lead stuff, right? Whether, whether it was, you know, you know our, our, our movie division, our television division, uh, our publishing division, uh, you know, I, I, I sit there in, you know, in big story meetings and, and we come up with concepts, but, but there, you know, even if it's my idea, it's, it's something that's going to be, you know, it's going to be created by another writer, right? So I, I'm, I'm, kind of see myself as a plumber in a lot of ways, right? I, I come in, oh, we got a leak. Let's, how do we fix this, right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm still at the big story meetings. I'm, I'm, I'm at all our editorial meetings. I am working on some projects uh, that I, I tease here and there, um, but they're long leads. So eventually there'll be something by me out there and I'm working with some of my favorite people. So, uh, so I'm doing stuff. I just, I, I also adhere to the old adage of, never talk about something until it's actually a real thing. And that comes from my back in my music days, uh, where I was told by one of my managers at the time that, you know, don't don't talk about a record deal unless you sign the record deal. Don't talk about the big gig unless you sign that contract for the big gig. Because if it falls through, um, people not knowledgeable with with the music business and how things fall through on a on a, a minute by minute basis. They don't view it as like, oh, that's the music business. They view you as, ah, you're a loser. You didn't get the deal, right? They, they, they'll view it negatively. So, so I try to keep anything that I have that's percolating, brewing on the cusp of being announced to myself uh, until it's actually a thing. Once it's a thing, then I'll talk your ears off about it. But up until then, I try to keep it close to the vest. Just digging deeper into comics, like with this with this YouTube channel and, and making the discoveries that we have beyond just like the standard fanboy part of it, man, uh, making sure that you don't let the cat out of the bag too early uh, is a good thing in as much as it, it uh, staves off the anticipation for the inevitable letdown. Uh, if it's if it's too long of a lead time, people start yes. to get ideas in their head about what the thing will be and ultimately will never deliver on that. So when you present that Batman killing joke. Yeah, it's okay, but whatever, man. Or or Camelot three thousand, like that yeah, kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's ten times truer today. You know, you know, with, with social media and the fact that stuff just gets, it, it even if it's not spoiled, if you talk too, if you talk about it too early, by the time uh, by the time it's released or dropped, uh, fandom will feel like they've experienced it already. You know, uh, and they've like you said, they've created their own stories uh, about what it what it's going to be, what it should be. Um, instead of just let, you know announcing and letting letting the the, the product speak for itself. Joe Q, are you telling us that when the uh, Miracle Man gimmick comes out, man, you're going to come back and uh, chat with us? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe. You see what Maybe. I did there? I see what you did there. <laughs> There's a good poster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing. I also wanted you to ask, or I also wanted to ask you about um, one of my favorite artists. I have seen come up quite a bit in influences on you, and that is Alex Toth. 
Yes. And I wonder if uh, if you could talk about how Alex Toth got on your radar, what you take from his work, uh, and just any any thoughts on Alex Toth. Well, Alex Toth was on my radar long before I knew who Alex Toth was, right? As a kid watching Saturday morning cartoons and seeing all that stuff. Um, and I remember uh, as I started to break into the industry and I was drawing Ninjack and I had a buddy who was really tight with, with Alex Toth, right? I, and by, by the way, so now, now as I'm, let me preface this. Um, so I, I got started rereading comics, right, at, at a later age, right? So I didn't read them through childhood to adulthood, right? I, I, somewhere, you know, in my mid-20s, I started getting reintroduced to comics. So I started to hear about this guy, Alex Toth. So I, I'm learning, like, I didn't know who Neil Adams was, right? I had to learn all this stuff. Uh, I missed the whole period there, right? I, I knew Kirby and, the, and, and those cats around that time. And then when I dropped them, I missed out on a whole generation of creators. So I was re-educating myself uh, or educating myself on, on these guys. So Toth was amongst them. Um, and I was just blown away, right? By, 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 again, the brevity of line, the ability to convey so much and so little. Uh, and I fell in love with this stuff. And then I have a friend of mine, he became friends with, with someone who was tight with Toth. And he's like, you know, I could send Toth your artwork and he'll review it. Uh-oh. Like, get out of here. He's like, no, I can't. So he'd sent some Ninjak stuff of mine. And he had sent some uh, Madman from, from Mike Allred, right? And, um, you know, Allred got, uh, Allred got his review. I didn't see it. My buddy told me, he's like, man, Toth, he loved Allred. Just loved him. Loved him. Right? And you can see, right, that there, there is a genetic connection right there, right? Stylistically in, in the brevity line. I said, and he's like, hated your stuff. Hated it. <laughs> hated it. I'm like, really? What? And so he read me kind of like a little critique that, that, that Toth had written and, you know, it's overworked. And, you know, I look back on that Ninjak stuff and I'm like, yeah, he was right. You know, he, he was right. Well, while, while I still felt like I kind of understood what I was doing storytelling wise, it was, you know, it was, it was a different time for superhero comics, right? If you wanted to make the big bucks, you had to go over the top. That was not Toth's, Toth's style, right? Toth, Toth was, you know, classic. Uh, and that was the only way to do it. So, but I appreciated the, the, the teardown, you know, again, you, you gotta, that, that, that's part of this business too. If you can't take the teardown, uh, then you ain't ever gonna, gonna grow or expand or really become, you know, any, have any modicum of success that is long lasting. You may have a flash in a pan, but that long lasting stuff that only comes with growth. Do you draw much? I, I like, I know you, you're teasing a, a potential piece of work. I remember seeing some pages in, uh, and some Hollywood flicks and things like this. Mm -hmm. And All the time. Uh, are you, do you, do you, do you do reps at the board or the Wacom tablet, the Cintiq as it were? Yeah, it's, it's, it's mostly Wacom these days. Um, uh, every day you got to draw every day and I write every day, every day, you know, that this is, this is the thing when, you know, when I talk to young writers and artists, there's always, there's always that connection. There's always that question. What do I have to do to become a professional writer? What do I have to do to become a professional artist? You got to do it every day, every day, right? Because if, 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 uh, if a kid asked me, you know, I, I used to play baseball, love baseball. And if a kid asked me, what do I need to do to become a professional baseball player? I'm like, no, I'm not a professional baseball player, but I know what you got to do, right? You got to be at the cages every day. You got to, you got to, you got to do fielding drills every day. You got to play every day, every day in order to reach. And then hopefully have, a modicum of, 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 you know, you know, skills you were born with 
that can then take you to the next level. But just having the skills does not get you there, right? You got to go every day. If you're a basketball, you got to shoot those shots in the gym every day. It's the same thing with drawing. If you don't draw every day, even if it's just 10 minutes, then number one, you don't have the desire to do it, really, the, the inherent desire that it takes to become a professional. And you won't get there. You won't. Maybe you'll 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 be a flash in the pan. You'll have because you'll have a particular style that that, that that people like. But if you don't do it every day, you just not. And the other thing is, as you become a professional, if you don't do it every day, you lose it. There is no question. It's a muscle memory thing. Uh, and the same thing with writing. If you want to be a writer, writers write. They don't talk about writing. They write. Even if it's ten minutes of writing a day, even if it's just a journal entry. If you don't write every day, then you're not doing it right, and you don't want it bad enough. In one of those earliest uh, Wizard magazines that I got my hand on, issue 37 to be uh, exact, the Rob Liefeld comeback issue, there is an event comics, Jimmy Palmiotti, Joe Quesada, uh, event comics, you know, like Ash piece that's in there. And that thing was super important to me because I get to see how, how Joe and Jimmy like lay out an issue. And I get to see these thumbnails on post-it notes that are super tight, uh, e even though they're so small, blown yeah. up to the bigger pencils. And uh, since you're working digitally, is there, uh, do you retain some of that kind of uh, early process? Like, like walk us through a page or whatever. Do you, yeah. do you uh, work on your page in spreads or one page at a time? Like how, how does this, this part of the gimmick work? Yes, yeah, so, so in the past, right, the, and again, th this comes from that whole role modeling thing, right? When, I met Neil Adams for the first time. He showed me his process and his process was you would do, you would do a thumbnail, like a postage stamp thumbnail, a little bit bigger than a postage stamp, right? And then you would Xerox that up and you would Xerox it up to actual printed page size. And then you start really adding your detail, right? In pencil, you just light box and you start adding your detail into that because, and the important reason to, to, to see it at that size, size your, your, your storytelling page is because that's what the reader's going to see, right? When, when this, when your product is produced, it's going to be that big. Um, and because now when you start working an actual page size, right, which is much larger, right? It's one and a half times up or whatever, your field of vision as you're working, if you laid out a, a page at this size, your field of vision can only take in half of that page at one time, right? Unless you're literally working like, like that, right? So, so, so Neil had this, this methodology. So I adopted that and I found it really interesting and really effective for my own work. Um, and it, to the point where I had to buy my own Xerox machine because it was, it was just the trips to the, to the, to the, you know, to the copy place were insane. Um, so, so I had this tiny studio apartment in New York city that was taken up by probably the majority of by this big Xerox machine. But it paid off because then also if you wanted to, you know, oh man, that that figure looks too small, you could Xerox it up, and, you know, and do paste mechanical. And then again, light boxing was a big part of my routine. Now that I'm digital, um, I'm able to, you know, just shrink stuff down and, you know, do the layouts in that way. Uh, in terms of like my storytelling stuff, I, I, there are times where I, where I will lay out, roughly lay out an entire issue. Um, but I've found that these days I like roughly laying out scenes just so I know how a scene plays out versus, uh, you know, just the entire issue. Um, but I, I don't like to do one page at a time. I try to avoid that because I, th I think it adds a, 
a certain staccato to, to the storytelling that isn't really conducive to, to flow. Um, but in terms of the, the one downfall that I discovered with, with working digitally is blowing stuff up to add detail and realizing I didn't need to blow this thing that far up. So, and I was trying to find a cure for that, right? Do, do I, you know, do I lock the page at a size? And, and, and it took me a while to realize, oh, I know what I can do. Just never, you know, my, my actual pen diameter never go beyond this, any less than this. What right? number so is that, man? I always hear 10 is the magic number, 10 pixels. I, uh, I go 15, sometimes 10. If it's a background figure, I'll go 10, but it's usually 15 for me. And that'll give me, you know, sometimes that that richness of stroke with the 15, because, you know, I go, I, I do one to 15, right? So it's, it's thick to thin or thin to thick, whatever. Um, sometimes if you're working on some background stuff, it just gets a little too messy for me. So I'll drop down to, to a 10, sometimes a seven. But, you know, I was doing stuff where I was down to like a four and a three. Hold on one second, folks. What kind of exciting stuff is forthcoming uh, from Marvel Comics? One thing we're super stoked on is that JRJR Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, having JRGR come back, man, it's just, it's just phenomenal, right? It's like Kirby returning. The guy's a legacy. He's just been a genius storyteller his whole life. And having him back on Spider-Man, that's a really fun book, by the way, too. I can tell you that much. But there's a ton of stuff cooking, you know? And, and again, I, I, don't like, uh, I don't like tipping stuff off because here's the thing. You know, when, when, when I was editor-in-chief and people would leak my stuff, it would just drive me nuts because it's the stuff in my department, right? I, I don't need you. Uh, and that's why, like, you know, if people ask me about the movies, they ask me about the TV shows back in the day, I don't like talking about that stuff because, you know, those divisions are run by other people. And, and you know, I, I, I just happen to have the benefit of intermingling with all these different divisions. So it's not my place. So C.B. Sobolski our editor-in-chief, you know? So he's the hype man these days. Uh, all I can tell you is that, you know, they're, you know, we, we have our big story conferences. We have some cool stuff coming up, um, you know, and he's just keeping, he's keeping the flame alive, man. One Love of the, the correct guy. answers was uh, Hulk Grand Design is coming out in March. And right. uh, Joe, we have- we You should have, have seen it that day. You should have sent me the note. <laughs> we, have, we have a mouthpiece here by way of this channel, 50,000 plus people. What can awesome. we do to sell this book and get a hundred thousand copies in circulation, man. Give us, give us some scoop, man. We have some ideas naturally, but you're a salesman. What can we do yeah. to get this thing up there? Listen, just keep doing what you're doing. You just gotta get out there and and, and you know shake hands, kiss babies, and, and talk about it. But you know, ultimately, at the, at the same time, you know, you, you you know, Marvel's got its own marketing machinery, right? So so they're gonna say to you, you know, this is what we're doing to market it, and, and they'll ask things of you. Um, but, you know, ultimately, as creators, you, you, the, the best you could do is go out there and just talk about the product. Talk about, you know, maybe set yourself on fire. I, I don't know. It's, it seems counterproductive. Uh, but, hell, it would get you a lot of attention, right? Uh, <laughs> just do it with your non-dominant hand. I don't know if I'm that, if I'm that know, dedicated. Yeah. But. You, could, you, could, uh, you could say something stupid on the Internet. I wouldn't recommend it at all. Right? The, but, the, Mark, uh, the Mark Miller philosophy. Uh, I, you know, Mark, Mark just says, doesn't say stupid things. He says outrageous things. Yeah, that's what uh, I you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mark, Mark is Mark is a is a great salesman, right? He's a great salesman. He loves to stoke the fire uh, from that old Marvel tradition back then. You know, we were doing the Ultimate books, um, but yeah, but that's the kind of thing, right? I mean, but but the, the other thing is, and and no disrespect to you or me, none of us are Mark Miller, right? We don't we don't you know we we don't have 
quite the following that, that, that he does, right? So when he says something like that, there's a lot of more people paying attention to it. But the goal is to get to that plateau, correct? Um, so you know, the only thing I can tell you is just, just, just keep talking about it. Man. It's the only, the, only, the only way to do it. And then, and then the book will, will, will rise or fall based upon the quality of the product itself. Because ultimately, you know, yeah, there's a collector's market up there, but out there, but what you want is you want readers, you want eyeballs, you want people to, you, you want people to love your story because then they want the next one. If it's just, you know, if it's just a, you know, flash the pan product, the collector's thing, it's, again, it's unsustainable. So, Joe, drop some uh, social media contacts, that kind of thing. If you have Instagram, Twitter, whatnot, and, and we could get the heck out of here, man. We know you're a busy man. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm Joe Casada on Twitter. I'm Joe Casada on Instagram. I think I'm Joe Casada. I don't use Instagram as much as I should. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, same name. Hang on. Let me just check my Instagram. When am I on my Instagram? Uh, shows you how much I know. Uh, yeah, I'm Joe Casada on Instagram. There you go. So. And, and, and worth noting for people who haven't been following you, you do post a lot of artwork. So if you're a fan of I, I, I do, I art, you can uh, follow to see some of that art popping up. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'll admit to you guys, I, I don't post on social as much as I used to because, again, much like Legends of Zelda. See how I just did that? See that callback? Whoa, all the way back to the beginning. Um, it's a time suck. And it's a rabbit hole that I see creators get into. And, and, and sometimes they... They can't get out of it because, you know, it's that endorphin rush of people saying, oh, love your stuff, love your stuff. But here's here's a little bit of advice I'll, I'll leave you guys with, you know, in terms of like social media. Social media is not the real world, right? Uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of people liking what you said or liking what you've posted does not mean that they are going to the register, reaching into their wallet and taking out their hard, hard, hard earned money to buy your product. It just means they liked it for free. And so what, what you know, so I, I, I often find that, yeah, I, I don't know if my posting every day on social media is gonna get me a single extra sale. Maybe I should take that time to make my product the best it possibly can be and, and post whenever, you know, I've got something important to say. But I understand that the endorphin rush, because, you know, we work, we work, you know, most creators are working at home and that endorphin rush, rush of posting something and having fans go, we love it, is great. But I can't tell you how many people I've seen in the industry who have hundreds of thousands of followers uh, and, and, and can't sell more than 10,000 books, right? And so, so it, it's, and that's not a slight to them. It's just, a, it's just a warning that it's not the real world. It's not actual sales. It's not it's not feet walking into a store saying, hey, I want to buy the next book by so-and-so because, man, I love that other book so much. Uh, it's just people on a keyboard saying, cool. That's all. Takes a half a second, which is the reason why I like having this YouTube channel. And when you take a look at the metrics, people stick with us for about 45 minutes whenever they Listen, come, I, come I, again, Yes, Again, right. It, it's, it's, it, if the number is, if you got a sustainable number. That's great. That means people are interested in what it is that, that, that you guys are providing, right? Uh, and with, of course, with brilliant guests uh, <laughs> to provide that content. But, um, but yeah, I, I just I, I, I often see I see creators getting caught up in the whole internet stuff at all, right? And, and it's just it's it serves its purpose, but it can be counterproductive if you if you spend all day on it. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm floored at how anybody gets any work done when they're posting 20, 30 times a day just unbelievable to me so so i post when i got something something that i feel oh this is gonna be fun to post 
but I try not to make it an addiction because I, I know how that goes. Joe, super cool, man. Thanks so much for your time. Nice. Get back to business, man. Uh, thanks yeah. for swinging by Cartoonist Kayfabe. And once again, when that Miracle Man comes out, do come back. <laughs> bring Neil, bring Uncle Neil. He's coming to town in May. We'll, we'll get him yeah. uh, to, to come talk about it. Uh, well, and uh, let's let's do it again, man. All right, brothers. Take thanks. care. And, uh, good luck with the show and keep it going, man. Keep thanks. the faith. Thanks, thanks Joe. so much. All right.